Happy 420. I'm Kai, and you are listening to Stone Cold Murder. Thanks for tuning in for Season 2, Episode 4, The Murder of Bob Crane. Just a PSA, if you have any information to help solve a crime, you can go to www.crimestoppers.com to report any information anonymously. This podcast contains material that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. It is your friendly neighborhood stoners here, bringing you another unfortunately horrible case. Today, we have one of the homies on the podcast. We have Nicole and Maddie. Hi, Hi. Nicole. Hi, Maddie. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for being on the pod. How are you guys today? Pretty Um, good. Pretty good. Good. Have you ever heard of the Bob Crane murder? Doesn't really ring a bell for me. No? I feel like the name is like familiar in the back of my mind, but I have no context. Yeah. (laughs) Fair. Do you listen to a lot of true crime? Into true crime? Yeah. Yeah. I I used to just like draw and listen to true crime videos for hours. Hell yeah. As a teenager. Mm -hmm. Not as much anymore, but I still find myself doing that pretty often. Yeah. I listen to a lot of morbid at work. I had to take breaks though. But I like grew up ID channel on mm-hmm. all the time with my mom. Me too. And <laughs> Me too. Like forensic files and stuff. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Joe yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mom calls me and she's like, you gotta stay the fuck out of Colorado Springs. Yeah, and for some reason, like, going to sleep with it. It's just like, oh, so yeah. many people have that same story. You wake up and there's like crime scene photos on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's always gruesome one. It's never just like blurred, just like dead body, bloody, nasty. Yeah. And you're like, oh fuck. And some of the stuff that they're allowed to show on those shows is pretty surprising. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah especially for back then too. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of that stuff was taboo. Tell you what, it made my ass stay home. <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. Well, I am very excited, well, not excited to share this episode with you, but excited to share the case and get some, I don't know, more traction on it, I guess, because it wasn't one that I had heard of. Like, I had heard of Bob Crane, but I wasn't really, like you, I wasn't really sure where I had heard it, but as we get through this case, we'll figure out why, (laughs) because it's kind of... It's not like everybody will know it, but I feel like our grandparents, it's a, like a household name for our grandparents and stuff okay. like that. So maybe that's where we're familiar with it. Okay. So you guys nice and high before we start? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. And we'll have smoke breaks throughout the episode, but if you guys feel the need to smoke again, just let me know and we'll stop and take another break. Our story takes place on a hot summer day in Phoenix, Arizona. It's June 29th, 1978. Police are called to Winfield Place Apartments, responding to a phone call they received from a woman named Victoria Ann Berry. She had discovered her friend's mutilated body in his home. His walls, the ceiling, and the furniture were just covered in blood. And the ceiling. The ceiling, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Which, yeah, definitely indicates very brutal. <laughs> His bed was blood-soaked, the sheets, and he was barely recognizable when she saw him. The body was 49-year-old Bob Crane. He was shirtless and sprawled out on his bed with an electrical cord wrapped tight around his neck. His head was so severely damaged on one side of his face, it was like completely unrecognizable. Bob Crane's autopsy began in kind of like an unusual way at this crime scene. Mm. <laughs> His autopsy was actually performed on the bed where he was killed. Um, what? That's crazy. <laughs> That's no? <laughs> Which is a big no-no. I'm not really sure why they decided to just go ahead and um, do that, but they thought that was, like, a chill thing to do, which is never a chill thing to do. Yeah, no, <laughs> what? Like, you're totally gonna fuck everything else up in that crime scene. Yeah. Like, no. And we'll see, this is not the only thing that they fucked up in the crime scene. This is just like one of many things they fucked up in the crime scene. 
unfortunately. Bob Crane was an actor, so that's where we may have heard of his name. He worked with the woman who found his body, who was Victoria Ann Barry. Victoria and Bob had plans to meet for lunch that afternoon, but um, when Bob didn't show up, she got worried, of course, and she went over to his apartment at Winfield Place, and that's when she found him and called the police. I know, it would be a terrible thing that to find sucks. your friend or coworker <laughs> that way. Yeah, and you're just like, God, we're running late. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of hungry. Like, <laughs> then you get worried and you're like, fuck. And then you find that. Like, no. So, what happened to Bob and why would someone want him murdered in such a horrific and brutal way? We'll have to go back to his life before the murder. So, Bob graduated from Stanford High School in 1946. And in 1948, he enlisted for two years in the Connecticut Army Guard, and he was honorably discharged in 1950. So he didn't serve that long, but he did serve in the Army for a little bit. And while he was in the Army, he married his high school sweetheart, who was Anne Tazaran. Uh, the couple had three children, Robert, David, Deborah, and Kara. And like I mentioned earlier, Bob was an actor at the time of his death. Mm -hmm. But Bob started his career out in broadcasting. He started at WLEA in Hornell in New York in 1950. Bob moved his way to a more popular station throughout New York until he eventually landed a gig in 1956 as a morning host for CBS radio station in Los Angeles, California. So he moved from New York to Los Angeles, and when he did that, the radio station that he went to be the morning host at, they wanted him specifically to come out there to kind of like re-energize mm -hmm. the morning and try and get people more into the morning show, get their stats up, and Sometimes. just get a new like face to the morning show. And they were hoping like his bubbly, energetic personality would help boost those ratings a little bit. Bob did excel in his new position and he was sly, witty, and his charismatic personality allowed him to interview famous guests such as Marilyn Man Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope. All right, all right. Right? <laughs> so he was interviewing some cool people and doing his thing. People were really enjoying him and liking his morning show. So Bob's show quickly topped the morning ratings with adult listeners in Los Angeles, and Bob Crane became the king of Los Angeles airwaves. So oh, yeah. He was really doing good for himself. Bob soon started thinking about expanding his career into acting, and his ambitions led into guest hosting for John Carson on the daytime game show, Who Do You Trust? Do you, have you ever heard of that? Sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of it, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, me either. And he did appear on the Twilight Zone, actually. And Channing, which I've never heard of. Alfred, Kit, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents in General Electric Theater. Hmm. So. Yeah. I definitely know the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, that's the only one I know. Bob Crane knew how to play the game, and after Carl Rainer uh, appeared on the radio show, Bob persuaded Carl to book him as a guest appearance on the Dick Van Dyke show. So he was getting, he was moving around. Moving up <laughs> in the world, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> after Bob's appearance on the Dick Van Dyke show, Donna Reed offered him a guest spot on her show, The Donna Reed Show, <laughs> in 1963. They all have very just unique names for their show. Yeah, very so much so. <laughs> leads nothing to the imagination. you know who the host is. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> hmm, I wonder. <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> After his episode aired as character Dr. David Kelsey, he was such a hit, they ended up writing him as a regular on the show. Nice. Yeah, good he did secured that job. spot. Yep, he did. Bob continued to work and host his morning show and act until December of 1964, when he eventually left the Donna Reed show. 
1965, Bob was offered the starring role in a CBS television sitcom set in a World War II POW camp called Hogan's Heroes. So this is Bob's like most famous role in his career. This is what okay. he's like most known for. This is like a role that women just like flocked to him <laughs> for. They just loved him because he was like this hero, this oh, big. Bob. Yeah, they just <laughs> love him. And apparently it like kind of actually bothered him because oh. he would like meet a woman and she would be like, oh, be. I think his name was Hogan something on the show. But she, you know, they would, like, play it up in the bedroom, and he'd be like, no, like, I'm not about it. Can we just have sex? Yeah. <laughs> he was not about it. He was like, bitch, no. <laughs> um, the show was an immediate hit, and it ended up finishing at the top ten in its first year on the air. Just, like, hit after hit. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's got... What happened? <laughs> like, where did it all go wrong? I know, he seemed so nice. Who did he, he piss so off? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. The series lasted for six seasons on CBS, and Bob Crane was nominated for an Emmy Award in 1966 and 1967 for the show. So now Bob's career is really taken off, and along with his popularity, he's a handsome guy, and his betrayal of Colonel Hogan, that's the name, you know, the Hogan's hero, he really started to attract the ladies. Bob and his co-star, Cynthia Lynn, who played Helga, started having an affair while he was on the show. Oh, okay. So he's married to a um, high school sweetheart still. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which oh, sucks. Bob, Bob, what the hell, man? Yeah. It's like, oh, you coulda. Um, and so that lasted for a while, and then Cynthia left the show in 1968, and then Bob started seeing her replacement, Patricia <laughs> Olsen, who played Hilda, which is like it's such a close name, so and they were like this, almost the exact same character. Oh my god. So he had a thing for his co-stars, apparently. <laughs> In 1968, Crane appeared with Elk Summer in a feature film, The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz. I've never heard of it, but yeah. it was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1969, Crane starred in Abby Dalton's dinner theater production of Cactus Flower. Nice. Yeah, so he's just going. He's, he's just doing, doing shit. shit. He's doing yeah. shit. He's having fun. Enjoying it. Bob did eventually divorce his wife, mm -hmm. and in 1970, just before their 21st anniversary, she's dead. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, she's <laughs> dead me, unfortunately. But he and Patricia Olsen, which was his co-star, got married on the set of the show later that year. On the set? Yeah. Wow, all right then. <laughs> what a fuck you. Yeah. I'm just going to get married on the show, and... I didn't see it. Maybe mm -hmm. not. <laughs> but later, yeah, he got married later that year with um, actually the co-stars Richard Dawson as his best man. <laughs> I caught this show. <laughs> yeah, he's going. Good God. He's going all it. <laughs> their son, Scotty, was born in 1971, and they later adopted their daughter, Anna Marie. Robert Crane Jr. later revealed that his father, Bob, was not actually his biological father, and none of the Olsen children actually were Bob's kids. Oh. So, I don't know. I guess maybe they had an arrangement yeah. because Bob had an, a vasectomy in 1968 when he was okay. like still married to his wife. But he adopted all the children as okay. his own. So. Well, I, cool. fair enough. Yeah. 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 Which is nice. <laughs> I think that's nice. So after the cancellation of Hogan's Heroes in 1971, Crane appeared in two Disney films, actually. Oh. So, Super Dad in 1973. <laughs> Super Dad. <laughs> and a small role in Gus, which oh, was in 1976. Gus. Yeah, I've not heard of either of those. Sorry, Bob, I've not seen any of your stuff. <laughs> But in 1973, Bob purchased the rights to a comedy play called Beginner's Luck and began touring it as its star, of course, <laughs> and director. That's and never a good combination. <laughs> no. 
No, you get a hot head every time. Yeah. You know, like they never just are like, Let's see what you have. Give me some feedback, you know? And they're like micromanaging everything. Of course. Like, why wouldn't they? Yeah. There's a star and the director. So, yeah. So, he purchased the rights to the comedy play. And he would perform this at the Showboat Dinner Theater in St. Petersburg, Florida. And the L.A. Miranda Civic Theater in California. The Windmill Dinner Theater in Scottsdale, Arizona. And other dinner theaters around the country. So, I guess this play was good too. (laughs) A busy bee. Crane guest starred in a number of television shows like Police Woman, Gibbsville, Quincy, M.E., and Love Boat, which I know that one. And in 1975, The Bob Crane Show aired on NBC, but it was canceled after 13 Oh, damn. Yeah. So I didn't get a season. <laughs> Got 13 episodes in you, Bob. Sorry, bud. <laughs> Bob and his wife, Patricia, separated in 1977. And they were just weeks away from finalizing their divorce at the time of Bob's death in June of 1978. Uh-huh. So that's kind of like the timeline of his life up until his murder. Okay. So in 1978, Bob taped a travel documentary in Hawaii, like just on his own. He just, okay. you know. He just went out there with a camera. Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to make this documentary in Hawaii. And he recorded an appearance in a Canadian cooking show. All right. <laughs> it was like a Canadian celebrity cooking show. And okay. neither of these aired in the U.S. after his death in June. But they did appear, or the celebrity cook show did broadcast in Canada in late 78. Oh, okay. But, I don't know. It was weird that he went and just decided to film himself in Hawaii. Yeah, <laughs> like, the... I'm going to Hawaii. <laughs> Everybody wants to know what I'm doing. Of course. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, everybody wants to see me just like swim and lay here and enjoy my life while you have to do your mediocrity. Like, yeah. Work. <laughs> I have to work for a living. I can just... <laughs> Hate myself in Hawaii. Yeah, so Bob seems like a great guy. He's like mm-hmm. focused on his career, and besides his little like extramarital affairs, it seems like he's like well liked. And yeah. like, why would someone murder him? Yeah, like, you have any idea? No. Well, he did have an affair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always like when like, affairs. Yep. Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. They were about to be settled, though. Was she going to get a raw deal? She actually was... She got a good deal. She got a good deal. Mm -hmm. Would she have gotten a good deal if he didn't die? Did she get, like, life insurance or something? She got a good deal either way. She got a good deal either Uh way. Yeah. She was, like, set. And also because she's also, like, his co-star, so... Yeah. She was was pulling in. I I mean, like, money is always a big motivator Mm -hmm. for everybody. Well, he had some skeletons in his closet. Okay. And uh, people think this could be, like, the reason why he was murdered. Okay. What were those skeletons? I'm going to tell you, but after a quick smoke break. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. So during Bob's time on Hogan's Heroes, he was introduced to John Henry Carpenter. John was a regional sales manager for Sony Electronics. And he helped famous clients with their, like, video equipment. So he was well-versed in the celebrity community. And he helped a lot of people, I guess, with movies and TV shows and things like that. So they started a friendship, and the two began visiting bars and nightclubs together. And Bob obviously attracted a a lot of women due to his celebrity status and his looks. And Bob would start introducing Carpenter to women at the bar as his, like, manager, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't his manager. Like um, the main man in it? Yeah, he okay. was the main man in it. Up. But <coughs> kind of like an alternative motive. Okay. So Bob and John would bring women back to, like, John, uh, Bob's place, and they would videotape, like, a joint sexual encounter with the oh, women. Oh, no, no. So he was, like, picking up women for both of them. Basically. So, 
Bob's son, Robert, later insisted that all of the women were aware of the videotaping and, like, consented to it, but several of them claimed that they had no idea, actually, that they were being videotaped and recorded until they were informed by Scottsdale police after Bob's murder. So, Uh yeah. So. Somebody's lying. Yeah, which is not good. (laughs) So, um. The two of them would continue this little routine um, for of going to the bar and picking up women for the threesomes and then videotaping it. And John would eventually become the regional sales manager at Ikea. Uh, not Ikea. I- Ikea. And this job, I don't know what that is. But he would become the real uh, regional sales manager at this place. And the job would require lots of travel, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he arranged his business trips to coincide with Bob's dinner theaters. Okay. So that they continued their little... So now we're taking this okay. shit. It's, it's, it's a road. mobile... Yeah. <laughs> They're taking this on the road. Mobile creep show. Mm-hmm. Apparently, two days before his death. He called his son Robert, and Robert said that he had, he was like two weeks shy of his 50th birthday, and he said, I'm making changes, I'm divorcing Patty, and that he wanted to lose people like John Carpenter, so Mm. he was feeling either like some type of way, maybe feeling a little guilty for what he was doing, perhaps, Mm. and he kind of like wanted to cut ties with his past and start over. Alright. So... Carpenter had become kind of like a pain in the butt to him, and he wanted a clean slate. But that never got to happen. And Robert believes that when his dad tried to pull away from John Carpenter, that he became enraged, and it was kind of like a breakup of sorts. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was, like, some weird sexual Mm -hmm. thing between the two of them. Right. Yeah, because, Because like... Yeah. You don't fuck a woman together over and over again and not go, be a little homo about it. Yeah. Like, I'm saying, I feel like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's gonna, you're gonna get some feelings involved there. Yeah. And especially because I don't think John was able to be picking up women too <laughs> well on his own. He wasn't like... He's like, damn it! <laughs> yeah, he wasn't really great in that area. <laughs> so he was like losing all of that all at once, so... Kind of like a breakup, and Robert claims that John lost it, and he was be- like he was being rejected, and he was being like spurned like a lover. So mm-hmm. there are eyewitnesses actually that the, that night before his murder at a Scottsdale club that they said he had an argument with Bob. After that, a few hours later, he was dead. So it was an mm, eyewitness. Oh, uh-huh. they had a fight. He had this call from his son. Somebody caught hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Scottsdale Detective Barry Vassell was in Phoenix with a colleague on June 29th, 1978. What was his name? Uh, <laughs> Barry Vassell. I thought you said buried asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Detective buried asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a horrible name. <laughs> no, Barry Vassal. Um, he was a Phoenix detective. And with a colleague on June 29th in 1978, he was called out to the unit of 132A of the Winfield Apartments. Several cops were already present when he arrived, along with Victoria Barry, who called the cops. Ooh. So... Detective Vassal was reported to then drive to the airport to pick up Robert. So, like, he was called out to the crime scene, and then they were like, nah, go pick up Robert, which is odd. And also Bob's business manager, and Lloyd Vaughn, who's an attorney, and Bill Goldstein, and bring them to the crime scene. So he picked these men out from the airport, brought them to the crime scene, And on the afternoon of June 29th, the county medical examiner, Dr. K, arrived at Bob's apartment at about 4 p.m. And by this time, Bob had already been dead for 12 hours. 
and like rigor mortis had already set in his body and all that kind of stuff. So there's like a lot of trampling in the crime scene. They're not really getting there on... Shit's all fucked up. Yeah, they're not getting there quick. Like, they're just kind of, I guess, nonchalant about it, which is yucky. I don't know. I don't like the thought like, of that at all. I mean, this this man is like a celebrity. Yeah, you would think Like, that. doing mm-hmm. shit. Like, maybe a little bit later in his career, it seems, but like, not like a, a not peak, you know? Right. his own traveling show. He's, he's yeah. doing shit. So. I don't know. And he was in Disney. Like, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> you would think it would be a little quicker than this. But 12 hours passed by and the crime scene, crime scene photographers were there taking pictures in the apartment. Um, and Scottsdale PD also took, t- like, a detailed video, which is just, like, a crude black and white video, which mm-hmm. you can see online if you want, but it's pretty gruesome. And Dr. K began like a little look at the body and he was observing the blood spatter on the wall and above the bed and the blood soaked sheets the pillows and partially like pushed back from bob's head so they were like his head was on the bed and the pillows were like pushed Mm. back towards the wall he immediately noted that there was an electrical cord wrapped around his neck and then dr k took a weird step and he just started getting right into the autopsy right on the crime scene. What the <laughs> fuck? Which is like unheard of in my I've never heard of that happening in a crime scene. Yeah, that's or like pretty... ever. Yeah, no. It's weird. It's yeah, weird. That's, that's really weird. Could they like I mean, even with rigor mortis having said it, there's no way there's like they wouldn't be able to get him out of there. No. Yeah. Like, there's really no reason to do it. Yeah. No, and you would think, like, a squishy bed, like, wouldn't be the right surface to do an autopsy. Yeah, I feel like they just make it harder. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it being any good in doing it there. But, yeah, I'm not a good doctor. (laughs) I don't know. So, he started doing his autopsy thing. He's cutting him open and looking at the body. And he just kind of like wanted to get a a better look at the left side of his face, which is where the fatal wound was. Mm -hmm. And he took out a straight razor and there on the blood soaked bed, he shaved like a four inch semicircle around Bob's left ear just to get a clearer idea of what kind of weapon could have been used. All right, so just putting hair everywhere on the crime scene. Like, I... It's atrocious. So, yeah, this obviously introduced issues of contamination and, like, possible cross-contamination of the crime scene that would, like, prevent from finding stuff, like, moving forward. So, that's great. He did a good job. So June 30th, Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Jarvis performed another autopsy on Bob Crane. He was just 49 years old, and he would have just turned 50 in two weeks from the time of his death. So the type of death was listed as violent in the manner by blood-forced instrument and cord. The abnormal findings were... um, Dried blood on his face and hair, upper chest, and the autopsy report also noted a flaky white dry material on the pubic hair area okay. and like lower abdomen and like interior right <clears throat> thigh. And they thought it was likely semen, though it was never tested. Okay. I, I In the back of my mind, I was kind of wondering if he had been maybe assaulted. Right. Yeah. This right. took place during the 70s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that uh, forensics were a lot yeah. like, less advanced. Totally. I yeah. mean, it, definitely. Did that kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. DNA didn't super take off until the 90s, and like right. they didn't even really start collecting it for future testing until like the 80s. Like, at least from what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely in most cases. It's, I mean, yeah, they don't really have any use for it, you know? Yeah. I think some, yeah, here and there, but... 
Um, I gotta be honest, Carpenter is looking super good for this. <laughs> I don't know anything <laughs> yeah. to do, honestly. I was thinking the wife, but like maybe she, I don't think she's involved. She's probably just out of the house because they're getting divorced. She's getting all the money. It's, <laughs> like, it's weird that so many people were brought to the crime scene. Like, okay, like the lawyer, I kind of get, I guess, to verify, like, okay, this guy's dead. We can close. I can start all this extra paperwork. Whatever. Yeah. I guess, like, maybe it's a courtesy. But, and also to identify the body. Mm-hmm. But even though what's her face that called the cops probably already identified. Yeah, him. like, she knew for sure. But, like... Maybe a lawyer identification is more credible. But that's giving a lot of credit to people who can't lock down a crime scene for shit, it seems. <laughs> it's, it's a shame. It's a shame because, like, definitely they knew better. Yeah. At least they at least knew better to not do that. But why do they do these things? Well, that I, that <laughs> autopsy on the bed is egregious. It's awful, isn't it? I that's was just like, ew. <laughs> you imagine? I mean, like, that, you're just making it harder on yourself, number one. And number two, just, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> like. Right. Clearly not a good doctor. <laughs> doctor K, we have problems. So, yeah. they found that, like, white and dry material on him. And police later just, like, had a theory that the killer had masturbated over his body. After killing him as like a final fuck you to the victim. It was just a theory, but the <laughs> semen was never tested. And according to former Scottsdale police officer Dennis Borkenhagen, which is a name, <laughs> Borkenhagen. It's just... a long one. He, <laughs> he was uh, present for the autopsy along with Lieutenant Ron Dean. And he asked for the semen to be collected. And according to Borkenhagen, Jarvis, <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face, um, Borkenhagen, I like it actually, Borkenhagen, <laughs> Jarvis dismissively said, what's that going to tell you? So they weren't really into, I don't know. All right. Like, what's just the ignore. going to tell you, I guess? I mean, like, they could still test to see what it was. They couldn't see who it was related to, but they could look at that shit under a microscope and see a bunch of dead sperms and be like, oh, shit, it's semen. It's not like they're stupid. (laughs) He said, what's that going to tell you? That he had a piece of ass before he was killed? What? (laughs) That was the end of that, and the semen was never collected. (laughs) Robert, Bob's son, believed that what happened at the crime scene completely compromised the hunt for the killer, obviously. Uh, yeah. And Von Goldstein, who was one of the guys that they picked up from the airport, he walked through the apartment examining and touching and handling all sorts of items in plain view of Basil, who was the detective, and Robert, who was Bob's son, wrote in his book, we added all of our fingerprints and hair samples to an already compromised, lackadaisical investigation. And it was, like, a casually considered murder scene. So, like, he didn't think that they took very much consideration in Cops the event. Cops showed up like, yeah, this guy, shit, he's dead as fuck. He's dead. <laughs> what do we do now? What do now? <laughs> yep. Do we clean up? Is it time to clean up yet? I want to go home. They said, can you, that's what the, can I think you do that's the what autopsy they were here? Yeah. It's, it's a lot to ask to like yeah they suck clearly so vassal is now retired from the force and he's a private investigator in the scottsdale Mm -hmm. area he sees it of course differently and he said in a perfect world you have a crime scene that nobody's allowed in and nobody's allowed out you only have one or two people in there but that doesn't always happen and i don't think there was any contamination of the crime scene (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is what you which is what you are really worried about. So he clearly doesn't see any wrong here. <laughs> the Scottsdale Police Department had no homicide division in nineteen seventy-eight, so it wasn't necessarily equipped to handle such a high profile murder investigation. And the crime scene itself had very few clues mm-hmm. and no evidence was found of forced entry into his apartment and nothing of value was missing. So 
that mm. took a lot of motive out of it too. Detectives examined Bob's extensive videotape collection, mm -hmm. which of course led them to John Carpenter, mm -hmm. who had flown to Phoenix on June 25th to spend a few days with Bob. So that was mm. a few days before the murder. So John's mm. rental car was impounded and searched. <laughs> And several blood smears were found that matched Bob Crane's blood type. But no one else of that blood type was known to have been in the car. So, including Carpenter. So, he doesn't have the blood type. Hmm. Yeah, but DNA <laughs> testing wasn't available, like you guys said, at the time. And the county attorney declined to file any charges against John at that time. So... I feel like that is a... It's circumstantial, but I feel like it's enough to, like, get him and question him at right? least. Mm -hmm. Like, so and, like, a warrant to maybe search his home. Something. And another, maybe because he lived in a different state. No. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, he, and he would travel a lot. So I think he lived in Arizona, but he would travel the country because he was the okay. regional manager for a company. So, but just like, yeah, people just not wanting to do what they need to do. Let's take a little bit of like imagination here. <laughs> yeah. DNA testing wasn't available in 1978, but all the roads led to Carpenter, obviously. And not only did the cops know that the pair had been fighting, but there was also no sign of forced entry into Bob's apartment, which suggested that the victim knew his assailant. But there was even more damning evidence than that. At the scene, there was blood everywhere. There was some traces of blood on the back of the exit door and the front door and the doorknobs, like everywhere. It was just everywhere. There was red stains on the curtains and we found blood, he said, in Carpenter's rental car on the passenger's door. Hmm. And it was Crane's blood type, obviously, like we said. Nobody else handled the car and... Nobody else had the same blood type as Bob, which was type ble uh, bleed, <laughs> type B <laughs> blood. <laughs> all of it was. All of it was the B blood. But what cops found in Carpenter's Chrysler wasn't enough. And without a murder weapon, detectives couldn't persuade the county attorney to issue the arrest warrant. Really? Yeah. That's... Yeah. What? Yep. So then we fast forward all the way to 1990. It's forever. Scottsdale Police Detective Barry Vassell and uh, the county attorney of the office investigator, Jim Rines, re-examined the evidence from 1978 and persuaded the county attorney to reopen the case at the time. DNA testing was inconclusive on the blood found in Carpenter's mm -hmm. rental car, but they did discover evidence of a photograph of the car's interior that showed a piece of brain tissue in the car. <gasps> what? Yeah. What? <laughs> like, <sighs> did they collect it? Yeah. Unfortunately, though, the actual tissue samples recovered from the car had been lost. Oh, lost my ass! <laughs> <laughs> but the but an Arizona judge ruled that the new evidence was admissible. So, okay. In June of 1992, Carpenter was arrested and charged with Bob's murder. But prosecutors definitely had a tough case ahead of them because Carpenter's attorneys attacked the, the prosecution's case as circumstantial and inconclusive, obviously. Because it was just based off of a picture and they didn't really have any, like, physical yeah. things anymore to test, you know? It would be different if they had the tissue. Yeah. A big fuck up on police's yeah. case again. <laughs> So, they presented the evidence that Carpenter and Crane were still on good terms, including eyewitness from the restaurant where the two men had died the evening before the murder, saying that they weren't fighting, they were doing great. Like, nothing happened here. But prosecutors tried to point to a missing tripod as the murder weapon. Mm. So, they were trying to say that he got beat in the head with the you tripod. Know, that makes sense. Honestly. Honestly. But Carpenter's attorney, uh, attorney, 
<laughs> I'm just fucking up some of these. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, John Carpenter's eternal. eternity. His eternity. <laughs> His attorney shot down the speculation that a missing tripod could have been the murder weapon. So he's like, nah. And he reminded the jury that there was no proof of even the existence of a tripod. And they were just pulling it from thin air. Which, um, I think, you, like, we could put two and two together. Like, Well, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if someone who knew him said he has a tripod and they did not find a tripod yeah. in his house, <laughs> it's <laughs> missing, like... <laughs> Let's put that in the calculator. Um, yeah, two plus two equals four. Hmm. It works. I don't know. So, they noted that the murder weapon had never been identified or found, and the prosecution's camera tripod theory was sheer speculation. And they said, based on based solely on Carpenter's occupation, is where they pulled this stuff. So, But, mm. like you said, like we knew he, he was videotaping people mm. in his room more often than not, so like... Mm. They disputed the claim that the newly discovered evidence photo showed brain tissue and they alleged that the police work had been sloppy, which it was, and such that the mishandling and the misplacing of the evidence, including the crucial tissue sample itself, was enough to just, like, dismiss John. And they pointed out that Crane had been videotaped and photographed in sexual relations with numerous women, implying that any one of those women might have been the killer. So. (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, I mean, get on their case, because, like, like they're trying to get them off. Valid points, I guess. You are a defense attorney. Yeah. But, he, the blood in the car, the fact that that's just not... Mm-hmm. considered more than circumstantial especially with the blood type matching and then their close relationship yeah and that he had flown there to like hang out with him yeah specifically like, to visit him like I it's adding up yeah it's adding up for us but it's not they're playing they're playing the devil's advocate too well you know yeah um and they thought that maybe Bob's private life gave the defense plenty of stuff to play with, obviously, and they suggested that an enraged husband or maybe a boyfriend could have attacked him. And, you know, the detectives definitely doubt this was a motive. Like, they're like, no, we don't think the infidelity was the motive. So they are not in agreement with the defense, but they did say Bob was a non-confrontational guy and that these women did like him. And I don't think that I have ever interviewed one of these women that disliked him or was mad at him. So that was from the detective. So Hmm. At the 1994 trial, Crane's son, Robert, testified that Bob had repeatedly expressed a desire to sever his friendship with Carpenter in the weeks um, before his death. And he said that Carpenter had became like a hanger-on and a nuisance to the point of being obnoxious. So, clingy, I think. It seemed like he maybe had like developed a little bit of feelings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it definitely seems like something more was there that... I think the theory of, like, him doing the deed over his dead body uh-huh. and, like, related to all that, it's just all... I think so, too. It it really does make sense. Yeah. But... Very much a jilted, not lover situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those love triangles. Sometimes they work out. But they... Not in this case. <laughs> not in this case, it's not. Robert said, my dad expressed that he did not need Carpenter or Car- any kind of people like Carpenter hanging around him anymore. And he testified that Crane had called Carpenter the night before the murder and ended their friendship. But after all of that, Carpenter was eventually acquitted and he continued to maintain his innocence until his death in 1998. After the trial, Robert uh, speculated publicly that his father's widow, Patty Olson, might have had a role in instigating in the crime. Uh, He said, nobody got a dime out of the murder, he said, except for one person. Mm. 
Bob's will excluded him, his siblings, and his mother. With Ooh. yeah, with Crane's entire estate left to Patty Olson. I didn't hear any about any uh, child estrangement back uh-huh. in that timeline. I so. And she was, they were like just a couple days away from their divorce when he died, so. Mm. He repeated his suspicions in his 2015 book, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. The county district attorney, uh, I said it again, (laughs) what the fuck? Attorney Rick Romley, what the fuck? Responded, we never characterized Patty as a suspect, adding, I'm confident John Carpenter murdered Bob. Officially, Crane's murder remains unsolved. Mm. He said, we did the best we could. We went through all the evidence. We talked to all the witnesses that we could. And we came up with what we came up with. A lot of times when you have an old case like this, it is very difficult to get a a conviction. And it would have been a slam dunk if the DNA testing would have worked. John Hook, a Phoenix uh, TV reporter, convinced a county DA to allow him to access the old uh, blood samples so that he could send them to a different forensic labs to get them tested. And um, this guy that was going to test the blood samples actually worked on the John Benet Ramsey case mm. and the O.J. Simpson case, mm. which is interesting. And it is also absolutely unheard of that the county's attorney office would allow a reporter to reopen a cold case with yeah. like no police background, but they did. Hell yeah. And in November of 2016, county attorney's office permitted him to submit the 1978 blood samples from John's rental car for mm-hmm. retesting using like a more DNA, a uh, more advanced DNA technology than mm-hmm. used in the first one. And two sequences were identified, one from an unknown male and the other was too degraded to reach a conclusion, mm-hmm. which is a bummer. And this test consumed all the remaining evidence from the rental car making further tests impossible. Damn. Yes. Okay, so I am formulating kind of a theory in my brain. Yeah, yeah. So Patty, that Mm -hmm. was her name, Mm -hmm. right? She made out well. Mm -hmm. She did. And then we have Carpenter, who's pissed off Mm -hmm. because, you know, he got broken up with, you know, pretty much. I wonder if he went to her, maybe. Kind of like mm-hmm. a wild theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking, he's got to have someone to drive that car, and the blood evidence was on the handle of the passenger side door, right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was a rental. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe she drove the car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they, like, um, lured like, him in for, like, a... Maybe planned it for a long time, got the will changed. Yeah. I, I like your theory. So, um, Hook, who was the reporter who got the blood retested, he believes that John Carpenter obviously was also the killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in death, Bob Crane got the Hollywood treatment. About 150 mourners attended his funeral at St. Paul's Apostle mm-hmm. Church in Westwood, California, including Patty, Patty Duke, John Austin, Carol O'Connor, and his Hogan's hero, Castmates. Mm. In the years since, the Stars family members have battled grief and apparently each other over all of this. Mm-hmm. And before her death, Patty Olson moved her husband's body from its original resting place to another cemetery without telling Bob's family <gasps> first. No. Yeah. That's fucked up. I know. <clears throat> and then she just went ahead and set up a memorial website with her son Scott that peddled some of Bob's amateur pornos. <laughs> <laughs> so That's she's super fucked up. She's Those a great women. woman. I know. Yeah. Patty's a, a real swell gal. Oh no. Uh-huh. That's so fucked up. I know. But Robert Crane does not speak to his step siblings and his mother and his sister refuse to talk about what happened all those years ago. He said it's bizarre to me 
I'm not expecting a like let's hold hands at the table, but we've just like never talked about it. I don't know what else to do, he says. Carpenter's dead, Patty's dead, and time is just taking people away. Yeah. It's just sad, you know? Yeah. After all that, all this time has passed, yeah, yeah. no closure. Yeah. And people were just greedy, it seems like, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. So before we end here, I'll just tell you a little bit about Bob, and then we can get into, like, our final theory. Bob Crane was born July 13th, 1928. He was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, and he was the youngest of Rosemary and Alfred Thomas Crane's children. He spent his childhood and teenage years in Stamford, and Bob began playing drums at the age of 11. And by junior high school, he was organizing like local drum and um, bugle parades in his <laughs> no, like with his neighborhood friends. They would like walk around oh, the yeah. neighborhood and beat on drums and probably annoy the neighbors but be <laughs> super duper cute i'm sure <laughs> yeah which is adorable um he was known as, a, as the class clown and an intense music lover he joined his high school orchestra and his in its marching band and jazz bands hmm. bob played for the connecticut and norwalk symphony orchestras and as part of their youth orchestra program He's very musically talented on top of like all of his acting stuff too, yeah. <laughs> which is crazy. Just all around gifted. He graduated from Stanford High School in 1946, and in 1948 he enlisted two years in the Connecticut Army National Guard, and he was honorably discharged, like we said, in 1950. He married his high school sweetheart in Tazaran, and the couple had their three children. And in 1956, Bob and his family left the East and moved out West to California, where he began his lengthy and successful career in radio. He worked at KNX Radio and became the, care- the king of the airways in Los Angeles, and his radio program became a huge success, the most listened to on the air. This was due to his personality and his humor. He had charm and understandable quick wit, he was a beloved son, father, and actor, and his case still remains unfortunately unsolved to this day. Any final thoughts on this case? Um, it's too bad that like he got up to so many shenanigans. I <laughs> know. Yeah, because he was kind of cool. He was kind of like a cool guy, like yeah. a good guy outside of that. Um, I'll show you a picture of him too. I mean. A lot of these women, like, all of them did, like, all of them they weren't aware, or some of them weren't aware. It says just some of them. Like, I think mm. people were aware. Because, like, okay. it was out in the open. Like, he had that tripod thing. Yeah. I recognize um, this man. Right? This picture was the yeah. one I recognized for sure. Damn. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the pod and getting high with me. Yes. Yes, this was awesome. Yeah, so fun. (laughs) I appreciate it. R.I.P. Bob. R.I.P. Bob. Bob. You'll be doing radio in heaven. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe like interviewing Marilyn Monroe. There you go. It's full circle. Yeah. Well, until next time, stay high, stay safe, and thank you for listening. Mm